and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, we're going to talk about the Jira incident. But before don't, we do don't, that, don't, don't, don't. How was your week? Pretty good. Um, been doing a lot of different stuff. Like I did some Rails consulting for some clients, did some database Postgres consulting for some other clients. Um, for my own product, finalizing, getting ready to uh, implement the new payment gateway. Um, that's to allow credit card processing to happen. And also the CRM interface is getting used. So this integrates my project with the CRM and sends data into the customer's CRM. So a lot of different stuff going on, nothing really big, but just a lot of little things. How about you? Well, my my big thing this week was that um, <clears throat> we one of our core applications, uh, we upgraded to Rails 6 about a month or so ago. So it's a little behind but we're on the on the track to get it up to 7. But one of the things that happened was there was a um and I had forgotten about this cuz it had been a while since I did a real 6 upgrade but there was a an issue where I'm starting to get a lot of um deprecation warnings for um problems with auto loaded constants. Uh, so apparently Rails 6, where they were switching over from the classic auto-load mode to the Zeitwerk model, um, if you have stuff that's referencing constants in your code, in your um, initialization process, before Rails is fully loaded, then it has to auto-load those. But with the Zeitwerk stuff, it can't do that. It would unload them again and... It's so there's deprecation warnings. So I'm trying to figure out it's a fairly monolithic big application. So uh going through and putting the require statements down through that whole tree of stuff that's getting auto loaded would be a nightmare. So I'm trying to see if I can move that uh initialization process later, figure out a way to do that. But that's that's been the big challenge and is going to continue to be the big challenge, I think, the next week or so. Um, I had an issue where this was actually, actually when I was implementing um, Skylight, the application performance manager. And I had designed it as a module, some of this configuration, um, because it had to, I can't remember what it was. I basically had to call and do some things in order to flag that a deployment occurred. I can't remember precisely what I was doing, but I had it in a module and I tried to put an initializer to call it, but it didn't work. And finally, I actually had to stick all the code, not the module. Like I kind of gave up because of the whole auto loading mess and the code wasn't that long, wasn't a lot of code to begin with in the actual application.rb. I normally don't like putting stuff there because you know, when you upgrade it likes to override it and whatnot. But this was one instance where it's like, that's the precise right point to do what it needed to do. So. 
Oh, fun. <laughs> I wasn't jazzed about where it went, and I, there's probably another way around it, but basically I time-boxed my Googling and experimentation to say, all right, I've wasted enough time on this. This works. I'm not 100% happy with it, but it works. Move on to the next thing. Yeah, and and we were kind of <clears throat> kind of having that discussion too. My boss was like, well, is this an immediate concern? And I'm like, no, they're just deprecation warnings right now. But I think when we go to seven, Maybe it's, it's going to force the one. issue. Yeah, at 6.1 yeah. or yeah, seven. So it's mean. visible on the horizon at the very least. Um, but anyway, you know, it's going to be kind of a big deal for that app because that app is kind of core and, and really big and complicated and involved. So that's going to be a fun journey. Um, but, you know, well, you know, job security, I guess. Eat, eat, how do you eat an elephant a bite at a time? So just say, right. okay, yeah. what's the first deprecation warning? All right, how do I fix this? Well, the problem with this is it's a deprecation warning about like 30 different constants all at once. And it's because it starts in oh. one file and starts this constant tries to get to this one to get to this one to get to these two that gets to these four and there's just big tree of things that it's trying to auto load uh so if you know if anybody out there in chat land has any tips for how to get around something like that without doing 850 requires across a crap ton of files uh I'll put that in the comments below i'd be much appreciated so anyway, that was that was my big thing for the week. All right, so the main event, the Jira incident. Oh lordy. So um, first, I'm just going to kind of lay out the the timeline of events, um, and this is what I was able to kind of suss out from all the different articles and looking at Twitter and the announcements and stuff, and. Um, and so it, some of it could be a little off, but I tried to, because some of the reports and the articles were had different times and stuff on them, but I did my best. It may be a little off, but I think the general idea is going to come through. Um, essentially, what this is all about, and I'm calling it the JIRA incident because I don't know how to say Atlassian or Atlassian or Atlassian. I don't like saying I think it. You so said I'm it just, right, Atlassian. So I'm just saying Jira. Um, and frankly, Jira was Jira and Confluence were the things that were mostly affected. So Jira incident is what we're going with. Um, but anyway, so what essentially what happened was. Atlassian had a very big goof that caused downtime that lasted like almost two weeks, like complete downtime for a big, for a chunk of their customers, not for yeah, everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was, I think they initially said 400, then it was more like north of 700. But it constituted, I think, less than 5% of their customer base. Yeah, because they, they have something on the order of 200,000 plus customers. Yeah. So, you know, when I see the number 400, that's to me, that's a big number. 
but, but to them, to them it's that's, drop in the ocean. <laughs> you know, that's that's a small percentage of what they had to deal with. So, um, but anyway, here's how it kind of unfolds. Unless you're one of the four hundred to seven hundred. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's the big problem. So, what we're going to do is kind of lay this out, explain what happened, and and I'm going to try to be just the facts, man, Joe Friday. And good and, luck. <laughs> yeah. And not get all worked about it because it really it, it kinda it it chapped my cheese a bit and I you know, but anyway, we'll we'll try to get through the facts of it and then talk about okay, what can we learn from this? Um and how can we be better developers and business owners and customer relations people with with this knowledge. So here we go. So on April 5th, the morning of April 5th, or the afternoon of April, the, the late evening of April 4th, depending on who you're talking to, um, users started reporting being unable to access uh, Jira and Cl Confluence cloud servers. Uh, so that's kind of when the first reports started coming in. Um, the next morning, April 6th, users started complaining about the lack of information from Atlassian about this outage. Um, also through April 6th, the Atlassian status page uh, showed issues with several services, and all of them basically had the same generic kind of message. Uh, we continue to work for a resolution for the incident for a number of our products, you gotta add these, 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 and these. We confirm this is not impacting all customers, but remains a high priority. Um, and our team's working 24 seven to restore. All right, so obviously I'm paraphrasing, but that's the general gist of the message they were putting up. Um, and there was no new information supplied publicly by end of business on the six. So this is day two of the outage. And there had been uh, no customers directly contacted. The only information they were getting was essentially through this status page. Um, on the 6th, um, there was, uh, Atlassian was approached or contacted for information from someone. Um, and they found out and then kind of published this information, so it didn't, so Atlassian didn't take the step to publish this, but an, another organization did. Now, um, do you know why they didn't reach out to their customers on the 5th, or do you want to go through the sequence of events first? Well, let's, let's unravel it, or let's lay it out first, I think. Okay. Understand. Um, so basically, Atlassian said, while we were conducting a routine maintenance script, a small number of sites were unintentionally disabled, which resulted in them being unable to access their products and data. Um, and then there was some other stuff that they said, but that's basically what their explanation was of what was happening. The next day on April 7th, there was that little bit of information was made public directly from Atlassian. Um, 
While running a maintenance script, a small number of sites were disabled unintentionally. We're sorry for the frustration this is, incident is causing. So then from April 8th to April 11th, they just kept putting the same message up on their status board without any new information over and over and over again. We're continuing to cover, to um, work through the restoration process through the weekend, working toward recovery. Uh, we are continuously improving the process based on customer feedback and applying those learnings as we bring more customers online. So they were, at this point, you know, they, they had pretty much figured out what had happened and were working to restore things, but they weren't being very open about what had happened other than, hey, a script unintentionally disabled a few clients. So on the 12th, and this is, we're at now day eight or nine, depending on when your start date is, a mass email was sent out to affected customers that basically said this, we were a unable to confirm a more firm ETA until now due to the complexity of the rebuild process for your site. While we are beginning to bring some customers back online, we estimate the rebuilding effort to last for up to two more weeks. Now remember... And this is after over a week. Yeah, these customers haven't had access to JIRA for eight or nine days already, and then they're being told two more weeks. Now, if you don't know what JIRA is, it's a project management system. It's, I would say, probably the biggest one in the world, certainly in, in North America. And it is used by 200,000 plus customers. That's not users. They were estimating somewhere on the order of 800,000 users Anywhere from 50 to 800,000 users were actually affected by this outage. Of the the 400, uh, well, 700 plus customers that were actually affected. So this is all these users being told, hey, everything you use to manage your projects, you're you're down for three to four weeks. That that's a bit of a problem. Um. Also on the 12th, at, when they put that message out, they their status page claimed that 35% of their customers had been restored. Day eight or nine, 35% of uh, ostensibly the ones that were out of that 400 is what they were saying at the time. And then they issued a Twitter statement. Update on the cloud outage impacting about 400 customers. As part of scheduled maintenance, our team ran a script to delete legacy data from a deprecated service. Instead of deleting the data, the script erroneously deleted sites and connected products, users, and third-party apps. So, oops. Uh, and then they also said in that message, we're communicating directly with each customer to which a number of customers reached out to third-party uh, sites, news sites, and said, um, no, they're not. We, we've got a $10,000 a month bill, and I haven't heard boo from them. They've said absolutely nothing. And they, there were many of those reports with customers saying they haven't talked to us at all. So then the Atlassian CEO publishes a statement that says, 
Let me start by saying that this incident and our response time are not up to our standard, and I apologize on behalf of Atlassian. I would mark that as the first time that Atlassian did the right thing as far as communication goes. Their CEO should have stepped in long before day eight or nine. Um, they And he also revealed the reason for the outage. Um, and he said, the script was executed with the wrong execution mode and the wrong list of IDs. The result was that sites for approximately 400 customers were improperly deleted. So the, essentially, they hard deleted customers' data. Just pff, gone. And then on April 29th, so this is not that long ago, uh, they were following up on the postmortem, and the CEO revealed that the number of affected clients was actually about double their initial estimates. So they said 775 customers rather than about 400. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of how things laid out. There were a couple other interesting things that I, that I discovered going through all this. One that struck me as kind of, I mean, at this point, it's funny at the time, it would have been a frustrating hair pulling experience, but customers, so they had this issue but they couldn't report this issue because in order to report an issue to Atlassian, you have to file a JIRA ticket. But to create a JIRA ticket, you have to enter your customer domain. And when they went to enter the customer domain, it wasn't there anymore. So Atlassian re system rejected the ticket as not a customer. So they couldn't even report the outage. So they ended up having to call directly instead of going through the, the regular uh, support channels and get tickets, you know, get the Atlassian staff to create tickets on their behalf. And up to day seven, many customers reported that they got zero response on those tickets, even when they would update them and ask questions. Hey, what's going on? What are we seeing? And, and they just would not get communication through there. Uh, the... The first customer, according to Atlassian, the first customer that suffered from this outage was fully restored on day eight, and the final one was fully restored around day, day 18. So it took them about 10 days to get through all those customers. Um, the other thing that I find extraordinarily ironic is that Atlassian, quite a while back, wrote a very well-read and well-respected handbook on incident management, but apparently didn't implement those things because they didn't follow any of those guides. Maybe this was a previous CEO or previous <laughs> employees know. who wrote it who are no longer there. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So that's, so that, that's the... The sequence of events and kind of the things that were going on and what, what people were experiencing. So this was a horrendously bad PR problem for Atlassian, and it's going to continue to be for quite a while. Um, while all the reports I've seen say that most people who are using Jira are not going to jump ship because of this, 
they say the reason is moving all of their PM information to another system is a huge job that they just don't have the capacity to do. And, but what they will do is they will make sure they have a plan B in case this ever happens again. So this did teach the customers, hey, backups are good, right? Um, so, I mean, I guess if you're gonna silver lining this thing, there it is. It's your lesson that backups are good, always have a plan B. But there were some things that went very badly for Atlassian. Well, not that went very badly. That Atlassian did very badly. So I think we should mention a few things that to to elucidate some things is like the reason they they couldn't contact the customers is because when they deleted the sites, they deleted their contact information for the customers. Right. So they had no idea how to reach out to them. Right. And that that I get. What I have a problem with is them saying, we're reaching out to customers directly, and that's not true. Don't do that. Maybe, maybe they did a percentage of them, but here's... What I would have done, I would have said, if this happened, and okay, we did, deleted the customer data, we don't have their phone names or whatever, this is happening. You know it's happening. You put up a status page. What you do is you put up some sort of site, a contact form, and says, if you're experiencing this issue, fill out this information with what you're experiencing. Then you triage it and support to say, okay, who are the people contacting? Let's cross-reference this to billing or some other system to say, Yes, these are customers. Yes, we're dealing with, all right, give me the primary contact of this account. And then you know all your customers and then you start communicating. Then you can communicate with them one-on-one. -on -one. Right. You could have had this done within the first day. Why right. they didn't it, do something like that, I have no idea. Well, and that's the big thing. So I can understand that, okay, somebody goofed, right? They ran a script with improper stuff and the wrong IDs and it, it did bad And what things. was interesting is that they were supposed to delete a subset of a site, application right. related, and of the, uh, the unique IDs for those. But instead, it was one team confusing talking to the other team, and they and they gave them the actual main site IDs as opposed to the children IDs, as it were. Right. And when they ran it, it blew away the whole site. Right. So there were some, I think there were some uh, checks and balances that probably should have been in place with, with something that has the potential to be this destructive. Now, I, you know, I'm speaking with, with 2020 hindsight, of course, but the, the whole point of this episode is what can we learn from this? So, so let's talk about that. It, there's one is you should be, loathe to ever do anything that's destructive in a production database. It should take essentially an act of Congress and triple checking to delete records in a production database. That's, it's just dangerous. Um, and what you should have in place is a, a process where you first soft delete the records. Like you said, a deleted at, um, 
field or something like that to mark them for deletion and so that they're kind of filtered out. Or you move them off to an archive table and you let them sit for a little bit and make sure things aren't bad. Because if they are bad, then you could just put that stuff back, right? You could just undo that. Yep. If it's fine after a week, two weeks, whatever you decide is a, a reasonable amount of time, then you hard delete that stuff and clean it up. But, but don't run scripts on your production data that will hard delete stuff. That's just inc incredibly dangerous. So because... Or don't do that at first. At first, Always yeah. have either that first layer, a soft delete, where you just basically flag the record as deleted, and then you could even add the second layer, too, of moving the data or taking a some sort of extract to back up the data you intend to delete and then delete it, yeah. Right, and I've run into these scenarios. Now, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I'm not... I'm not bashing these people because I've done incredibly bad things in my career. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've screwed some stuff up, okay? I get it. People are human. That's that's fine. But there's um I have run into some situations like this where I had some some people telling me Oh, it's fine to run these delete scripts because we've got a backup. So if something goes wrong, we can just restore the backup. Well, <laughs> Atlassian had backups, but the problem is because this delete script only deleted a subset of their customers, they can't just slap the backup back on there because that yep. would have screwed up all the customers that were still going. So they had to do this one, basically one customer at a time. Now, as they went along, they started automating a lot of that so they could batch those restores and, and get faster at it. Um, and they've automated a lot of that process so that if it happens again, they can res respond to it much better. Ho hopefully they would be a little more careful in the future. But this this idea that, oh, we have backups, it's okay. It, it may not be. <laughs> That's... No, it's not. Don't don't just rely on backups. Um, you should put things in place to mitigate as much risk as you can, especially if you're doing something in your production environment, uh, because you've got people that rely on that stuff. They're not they're not paying you for giggles. They're paying you because they need it, right? Um. So. I mean, you, you really got to think through the worst case scenarios. What could go very wrong in our production environment? And let's have a plan for if those things happen. I know nobody ever likes to think about all the what ifs. And, you know, it gets depressing thinking about, okay, this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong. But you, you kind of got to, to protect your customers. Well, um, there are some people that do that. That's how they think. So you have them as an employees to do that job. Right. And there are actually people that make a living doing just that. That's that's their job is they think through risk mitigation. Um there's a whole industry that does nothing but that. Um but and those those are things that you know we should think about as engineers, right? But the 
bigger problem that I saw with Atlassian, and this is what the, the by far the number one complaint from their customers was, was the communication sucked. I mean, it was abysmal. They should have set up a war room as soon as they figured out that this happened. If I, if I said, hey, um, we have customer data that just got deleted, live customer data, the first thing I'm going to do is get every manager in the place into a conference room, start setting up phones, and say, okay, we need to know how to communicate this. I, at this point, I don't care about – let the engineers go over there and figure out what's wrong. We need to talk to our customers because I guarantee you they're freaking out right now. Yeah. Again, this goes back to what I said is I, I can't fathom that it took seven days or eight days or whatever just to reach out to – start reaching out to customers. Right. Or be able to reach out to all of them because, I mean, you do the scenario that I mentioned – and within less than 24 hours, you should know all the accounts because they'll tell you, hey, I'm a customer. I can't get it, you know. Right. And as soon as you become aware that, hey, there's something, we've had five customers report that they can't access their stuff and we're getting more reports. You go to the status page or whatever your your public Twitter, or Facebook, whatever your public facing thing is, and you say immediately, we're aware that some people are having some problems getting in. Um, we are going to research this. We're on it. We don't know the answer yet, but as soon as we do, we will let you know. And then as soon as you do, you let them know. Every piece of information you get, you pass to the public. Because what happens I is... I don't necessarily think you have to... Well, my opinion is I don't everything. think you have to reason all to the public. But you need to be hyper communicative to the customers that are being impacted. Right. I mean, you don't have to go to the point of saying, well, John Adams ran this thing that deleted all your data. No, but <laughs> we some data got deleted. We're still researching how that happened. And we're looking at what we need to do to restore it. Okay. If I'm a customer, I don't care what news you give me. Give me news. If you say, hey, we deleted all your data and we're trying to figure out, okay, I'll go take a coffee break. I'll come back in an hour, see what you've got to say. An hour. Yeah. <laughs> well, you better be giving, days. If, if you've deleted my data, <laughs> you better be giving me hourly updates here. Um, but see, here's the problem, especially today. See, 25 years ago when I started my career, this wasn't nearly as critical this this hyper communication wasn't nearly as critical as it is now and the problem now for businesses is in the absence of information social media will speculate and that will then become truth somebody's going to try to figure out what's going on and they may or may not have all the facts so if you don't give them the facts they'll make them up yeah um Mark Clifton asks, what are the standard SLAs for Lassian services? Seems like they should pay out for downtime and it should be in the contract. Yes, they have um, one of the things that they said, and I, I didn't put it in the notes here, so I don't have the exact numbers, but they are looking at, um, because this was like a triple zero uptime instead of a triple nine for the month. It was it, it was bad. Um, they're, according to their contract, 
at the level they were experiencing problems, it would be a 50% um, deduction for the downtime for the month of April. I wouldn't Although be surprised. Although if you're down if, for 20 days, I would argue. I, I, oh, I, I seriously doubt Atlassian's <laughs> just going to say, okay, you get 50% and that's it. They're probably going to be bending over backwards at this point to try to do damage control. So I'm, I, I would be surprised if they didn't because here's the thing here's the thing i agree that people are like well i can't fathom moving my project management tool but that's for in process projects right what about a new project coming down the line you mm -hmm. think some of those aren't going to say okay what are our other options because i don't want this you know incident to happening you know or even worse people who are evaluating new project management systems and Atlassian was on their on their yeah. short list and they see this and go nope so yeah there's there's a lot of damage control so the other thing so that's one thing that I can't fathom that they did to try and like I mentioned put something out there to get people to actually reach out to them contact us if you were having issues to get that contact information sooner to start that one-on-one -on -one dialogue but what about, um, I can't imagine that they don't have a restore process, even if they can't get the data back. Couldn't they, I wonder how hard it would have been to come up with a read-only copy of the customer's data and say, we're working on restoring your data and getting everything accurate in the meantime, here's some data that existed as of the last backup. Now, I know that's easier said than done, given the wide scope of this architecture, but that's just a thought I had. Right. So Mark says, I feel like a lot of these SaaS companies should have a download my data requirement and then some kind of limited self-hosted option to run against that download if something like this happens. Well, the <laughs> right. Okay. So on your first point, that these SaaS companies should have a download my data requirement, um, I'm not sure, I, I wouldn't like for the government to get involved in that, but the market could certainly say, hey, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have my data, I wanna be able to download it. And to be fair, a lot of SaaS companies offer that because it's just smart. And a lot of people, a lot of customers say, I, I, no, if I can't get my data when I want my data, I'm not paying you. So the, the market has has done some of that, but, um, and I don't know if Jira has that functionality and people just didn't utilize it. That, that very well, well you could never be. think about it. I mean, there's right. a lot of places that offer downloads, because, but it's something you need to go in and do. Right. And, and this is kind of an unprecedented situation. I have never seen a downtime like this on a major SaaS app. It, I, I have just never yeah. seen something like this. A, a couple hours? Yeah four weeks no that's um and the, the funny that you so you mentioned some kind of limited self-hosting option they actually have licenses for self-hosting and what was funny was a lot of the self-hosted people were getting onto twitter and saying we're not having problems because we're self-hosted it's all internal <laughs> sucks to be you guys um so it's kind of funny that you say that. But then Atlassian actually said not too long ago, from what I read, that they were going to discontinue selling licenses for on-site uh, self-hosted stuff. Um, I, I wonder if they might rethink that at this point. 
<laughs> but um, that was something that came up. So, uh, yeah. Um, it, the other thing when you're communicating with customers, I think uh, another thing where they f where they failed was that they were given customers just kind of very superficial information. Hey, there's a problem and we're working on it, kind of. And it kind of came off to me as you're not, hey, customer, you're not smart enough to understand what the actual problem is. So we're just going to give you this little blanket statement to to assuage you for a little bit. That's a that's a serious mistake. Customers today are very savvy. Um, they 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 aren't stupid. And Google exists. If you tell them something, the first thing they're going to do is Google it and find out what the hell you're talking about if they don't already know. Um, so, you know, be thorough with them with your explanations. Like I said, you don't have to give names and numbers and stuff, but tell them what's going on. Um, and, you know, I would have actually had two tiers, two, I'll say levels of communication. I would have the public general communication on the status page, on Twitter, whatnot, just a general overview, probably not unlike what they were already releasing. But then I would have all the names of the customers giving them detailed descriptions of, hey, this is what's actually going on, you know, yeah. with your site. Yeah, and I think that's probably a good idea. Hey, here's the business answer, and here's the technical answer. Dig as yeah. deep as but you want, but I wouldn't but necessarily classify it as business versus technical. Well, they, yeah, but but I'm saying the level of detail. If you're one of the 96 percent unaffected, you have just some sort of a statement you're putting out periodically. Hey, there's an issue we're dealing with. You know, right? Um, just to keep it, let people know what's going on because you know you are a customer of this company and you probably want to know what's going on if there's some sort of incident that you're hearing about. So you communicate on that level, but then you communicate a lot more to the people being that are down. Right. And so what they Atlassian, get all the detail. Yeah. What Atlassian didn't seem to understand is that the people that were going and looking at their status pages were CTOs and IT folks. They weren't, you know, some junior sales guy coming to look at this. These were highly technical people and they wanted to get highly technical information so they could understand this, this stuff. Um, and the, the other big problem I saw with that is that it was what until day eight or nine before we saw the CEO make a public statement about this. And that, that I think was a huge mistake. We hadn't seen, as far as I can tell, there wasn't any, um, management ownership of this problem in public um, until that happened. And what that what that kind of did was make people, well, the customers say, do, do you actually understand how big a deal this is? I thought the CTO said something prior to the CEO. Well, I think there was a, um, a response to in an article from the CTO a couple of days before that, which still, even then, that's a little late. But there wasn't really a, as far as I could tell, a real public, hey, this is a big deal to us 
statement from, you know, the the C-suite management team until day eight or nine. And something that's this big a deal, you know, maybe on the fifth, they didn't realize, quite realize how big a deal it, it actually was. But by the second day of the outage, they should have, and the CEO should have been in the war room with everybody else, and he should have been out in front doing damage control in the public eye. Because you've got to understand how big a deal that is. And, you know, they, they one of the things that I heard that really kind of got my goat was them saying, oh, this was just like, what, less than 1% of our customers affected. So, And that comes across as, eh, it's not that big a deal. Don't, don't, you know, while that's factual, you don't put that in your mea culpa statement. <laughs> that's that's kind of demeaning, you know? Yeah, but, you know, they need to, I'm assuming they're a public company. I don't know. I, I'm not but, sure. You know, they have to communicate to shareholders like, oh, sure. Hey, it's only 1%, 99 are still still good. We're We're good. <laughs> yeah, but you do that in your shareholder statements. You don't do that in your Twitter public customer PR environment. Well, but That's... you know, investment people see that too. So. Well, I, I mean, I get that, but you know, we you shouldn't include that in your mea culpa statement. That's just not a place for that kind of stuff. I, I don't want explanations. Well, I think it could have been point. phrased differently. Yeah, I, communicating. It is only a small subset of sites. Yeah. Is comforting in general. So I think that should be communicated, you know. Right. It could have been phrased differently. Yeah. Right. Because if you're if you're telling me as the customer that's down, hey, I this was only one percent of our clients, I'm gonna read that as so you're saying I'm not important? But you know. You're telling me you're sorry, but I'm well, not important. Yeah, what well, they, their perspective is, I don't give a right. blankety blank blank. Yeah, exactly. Get me up. <laughs> right. I've been down for two weeks. I don't care how many of your customers it is. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, their, their big failure here was the communication. They should have communicated much earlier than they did, and they should have communicated more information and different information. If you just keep giving me the same cut and pasted um, that's nothing status that's crap every hour, I'm just going to get frustrated. I want new information, even if it's just yep. a little bit of new information. You will you will make your customers so much less frantic. If you give them something. And they said, quote unquote, hundreds of engineers are working on this. Well, take one engineer and have him write something every couple of hours and right. post it. Communicate. Or or you know, call the marketing team on the phone and say, here's what we know this hour. Translate that into English from programmerese, please something um mark says seems like if they had good multi-tenancy then it would not be very complex to roll back any user error produced outages per site uh 
probably true. I don't know how exactly they do their multi-tenancy. Um, and I think it also would depend on what what kind of data was actually deleted. In this case, they deleted entire customer sites. Um, so I'm not entirely sure. Like, they got rid of the tenant. <laughs> so... Um, and my understanding is I think it also... I think multi... I think there were actually multiple apps that were impacted. So they reached into other apps or microservices and deleted their data too. So it was multiple databases affected, I'm assuming. Yeah. So I, my understanding was, and, and again, they haven't been terribly transparent on what the exact recourse was here, but my understanding was it was very complex restoration process. Now, I would argue in hindsight, you should probably make sure that your restoration process isn't that complex. But, you know, that's a hindsight 2020. That, that brings thing. something else. You, that is a good point for me to mention. This is that architectural decisions. So, so many times, I mean, you work, work at a large corporation with a, you keep on talking about the huge app. Yeah. Well, as apps grow and develop and they start doing like these <clears throat> multi-service architectures and you have, okay, now this service is here with its own database and this service is here with another database and this service here is another database. And these interfaces between them that, you know, when it works, everything is great. But then as you think about your architecture, how can you restore partial data is something I think you need to think about as you're doing your architecture. Oh, yeah. So is splitting off something into a microservice make sense or is it going to make things harder in some cases? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, something that we're at my company. One of the things that we're looking at is unmicroing things because they, you know, it, like eight or nine years ago, they got this wonderful idea for microservices and, hey, let's just split all. So they were like pulling out things like gems, you know, and but making yeah. them microservices. And what it ended up doing was spreading the data all over the place. And so then yeah. it gets hard to troubleshoot something because you can't go into the console and say, hey, give me this where it's this. Well, I don't know where it's this because this is way over in this database, but this one's over here. So then I got to go make calls and all that, you know, it gets messy. And we've just discovered that that there is there is a place for microservices, but it should be fairly limited. If you do that too far, it just makes a mess of things. And then you get into problems like this, where restoration of, of data is a massively complex process. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they had processes in place to like restore a database. So if a database goes down, it, it, according to their um, postmortem, you know, they have the processes in place. If a database goes down to restore, you know, but they didn't have a process in place of like this customer's data was deleted and that deletion happened across 10 databases or applications. Right. So 
they had to work through, I think, in their doc postmortem, like a 70 step process to go through to actually be able to restore one customer's data. Right. And that's why I think, so you know, I just, that's why I'm saying is like, I think this should have organizations reconsider some of their architectural decisions in that. Is there a way to keep this in mind when you're designing it? How hard would it be to, to be able to restore a flub like this? Right. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, like we were saying a little earlier, one of the things that you should do is think through all the worst case scenarios and how are we going to recover? You know, if this, if I have 20 of my 400 tenants, if they're delayed, okay, English, if their data gets deleted, how do I recover from that? And if it takes a 70 some step process, then my architecture is hosed. I need to rethink it. Right. Or you need to accept that cost and then build an automated process to say, if we delete a customer's data, this is the job to run yep. to restore that data. Right. And more importantly, don't just put that on paper. You actually well, no, need you to write practice a program it. to do it. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> With don't tests. <laughs> yeah. And practice it, you know? Yeah. Do that, make yourself an isolated network with your app on it and screw it all up and see how well you can put it back. You know, run drills on this stuff, run your engineers through it, make sure that, you know, my plan actually works in the real world, right? Because yeah. everything looks great on a whiteboard. Well, except for some of my so drawings, but, you know, anyway. Um. <laughs> I also wanted to mention, like, I, do PostgreSQL consulting. And there's one feature that not a lot of customers know about or use, but in incidents like this, it could be extraordinarily beneficial. Because if you have a multi-terabyte database or larger, it could take days to get it restored to a particular point in time. So, and if you have this condition of where you deleted a customer's data, it's going to immediately affect your replicas. So even though you have replicas of your primary database, it won't matter because they're all going to have the same copy of the data. But there is a configuration setting called recovery men apply delay. And if you set that, basically, you can set that for a replica to not apply the changes, it's being streamed from the primary. So you could delay it an hour, six hours, eight hours, 12 hours, you know, whatever you want. Oh. And if something happens, you have a delete of the data. Yes, the primary has been updated. Yes, all the um, immediately in sync replicas have been changed, but that replica still is looking, is applying data from 12 hours ago. So you could run, look at it, pull off data and start a restore process to get data back in without having to go through a whole actual restore from backup. Oh, see, now that tip there was worth the price of admission to this show. Okay, well, I wonder how many people <laughs> stayed to the end there. <laughs> hey, well, if you want rehash of that and more good stuff about databases, check out Creston's other show, Scaling Postgres. Lots of good stuff over there. It's all database related. Um, yep. Actually, all Postgres related. 
hence the name of the show. <laughs> but, you know, um, anyway, check that out. Lots of good stuff going on over there. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, that you know, the big takeaways from this are if you have a problem that that affects your customers, communicate early, communicate often, communicate well. Don't leave them in the dark because all that does is piss them off. Yep. You're never going to – burying your head in the sand for a problem is never going to let your customers have any confidence in you. And I don't care if you have to tell them, we don't know what the answer is yet. We're still looking. Tell them that. Because I can tell you as a customer, I'm happy with that answer. That's that's a wonderful and, and, answer. And here's the problem. It's not that they they knew early on what they needed to do, but meaning we need to go into all these different places to pull back the data, reconstruct it. They knew that at a base level, how they were exactly the detailed minutia of how they're going to do it. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. I know we got to do it. You could at least communicate. We deleted your data. We got to do all this stuff to do it. It's really hard to do. We're working on it. <laughs> right. And just say, okay, we've made a little bit of progress here today. Don't just keep hashing out the same messages. And also, your management team needs to get in public and own that issue because your customers need reassurance that, yes, management knows this is a problem and they're working on it too. Because otherwise, what customers see is, eh, eh, we'll get to it, eh. You know, so, you know, get ahead of yeah. the damage control. Don't do damage. Don't fix damage PR. Prevent it. Just communicate. And, you know, try to put things in place to mitigate the risks where you don't get into these situations in the first place. But things are going to happen. No matter how many safety nets you put in place. Communicate with your customers. They're not idiots. And... You know, nowadays with social media, they will destroy you if you don't communicate with them. They don't like that. Anyway, enough ranting from me. You got anything no, else? Good. No, that's pretty much it. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please make sure like, subscribe, uh, follow us on Twitch if you're seeing it over there. Um, just mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Uh, join us every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time for more Dev Talk. Tell your lovely friends because we know you lovely people have lots of lovely friends, and we'd love for them to come and discuss things with us. Uh, next week, we're going to have another surprise topic because we haven't picked one yet. Let you know on Twitter what we're going to be doing. So, you know, if you don't follow us on Twitter, do that at Ducky Dev Show. Um, and find out how absolutely crap I am at tweets. Um, the Twitter. At, at, at the whole Twitter thing. Uh, if you have a topic you'd like to see on the show, please, God, have a topic. Leave it in the comments below because we need some ideas. Uh, also, our podcasts are available everywhere that podcasts live, or you can visit our website, rubberduckdevshow.com, sign up for our newsletter, and see all our videos and podcasts there. So thank you for joining us, and until next week, happy programming. Happy programming.